Welcome to Journal Spotting. Have you been meaning to catch up on the medical literature, but you've been too busy trying to figure out what to wear now that your wardrobe is more than just PPE at work and pyjamas at home? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome, listeners, to Journal Spotting. Whilst we often like to bring you light-hearted updates in the literature, and we enjoy spending a fairly disproportionate amount of time doing things like slagging off Trump, drug monopolies, that's usually John, nasal swabs, that's usually mine. Mocking our lack of hair and your old age, Barney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we choose to cover some serious topics and pretty hard truths. Today, I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and my first hard truth of the day, I really am not a fan of ice cream. That's it. I've said it. It's out there. You're acting like this is a kind of drop the mic moment, Barney. I, <laughs> I mean, for me, I, I'm expecting mouths to drop and uh, people to gasp, actually. But maybe, maybe yeah. they won't. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Um, hello, listeners. As usual, I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and I'm mourning the end of my moustache phase. Praise the Lord. I mean... <laughs> Um, listeners, you'll, yeah, you'll be glad that this podcast is only an audio medium. The moustache, the hairy caterpillar on John's top lip has gone. How do you yeah. feel? I feel less French. You are half French though, aren't you? So was that your uh, your half Frenchness has disappeared? Maybe, yeah. i still got the passport though. So. <laughs> okay. We want to make sure we cover issues which are underlooked, important, and make us feel, well... Uncomfortable is probably the best word for it. But as doctors, I'm sure you agree that the truth needs to be heard and discussed. And just because facts are hard, they should not be ignored. So on today's episode, we're going to discuss the link between modern slavery, workers' rights and procurement in the NHS. Today, we're going to interview Mr. Mahmoud Bhutta on talking about this important topic and how we can act to improve the situation. Before we begin, let's start with a few facts. Provision of healthcare goods and services is big business, very big. In fact, the NHS spends in excess of 40 billion on the procurement of goods and services every year. Like many, many businesses, to reduce costs, goods are being outsourced and purchased from all over the world. However, there is really clear evidence that by keeping the costs down for organisations such as the NHS, there is a direct influence on the basic rights of manual labourers working for these companies. So, Cheaper goods for us, awful conditions for those working on these products. All you need then is a global pandemic like COVID-19, which exponentially increases the demand on goods. For example, the global need for N95 and FFP3 masks is expected to exceed 1.3 billion units for the next six months alone. This pushes foreign companies to increase production and drop prices to compete. And that can lead to disastrous outcomes for your average worker in these companies that often exist in countries that have very poor working conditions. However, the pressures and demands in the UK mean those in charge of procurement turn a blind eye where they once might not have. A simple example might be the, the rubber glove factories in Malaysia. Whilst the rest of the country was in silent lockdown, these factories worked at full steam. The workers, the majority of them migrants, live and work in impossibly cramped conditions with, ironically, no PPE, or social distancing taking part. Sounds like an incredibly complicated situation, but luckily today we have an expert to help guide us through. Shall we crack on with the interview? 
Yeah, I think that's great. Just before we start, John, just a quick reminder to check us out on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll be able to find some of Costa's brilliant graphics relating to this episode and others on our website, journalspotting.com. Let's crack on with the interview. So today we have Mr. Mahmoud Bhutta. He is a professor of EMT surgery at Brighton and Sussex University Hospital, and he has a 145 publications to his name, which is fairly sporty. In 2006, he started up the Medical Fair and Ethical Trade Group, which is hosted by the BMA, which we will be discussing in this episode. On top of this, Mood's passion for reducing health inequality has led him to being appointed as a consultant to the WH Programme on the Prevention of Deafness and Hearing Loss. And with this, he has worked in countries such as Cambodia, Nepal and Uganda. That's a pretty amazing career, Mood. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Today, we're going to be talking about a difficult topic. This is the link between modern slavery and unethical procurement in our healthcare system. Mood, maybe you'd like to start by introducing yourself. You've had a fascinating career and you continue to have a fascinating career. Maybe you could give a little bit of uh, insight into how you came to have such a career and that seems to straddle so many different areas such as clinical work, research and also traveling abroad. Sure. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, So I think you've already given an introduction and a very kind introduction. How I got to this stage, I, <laughs> a bit of luck, a bit of uh, taking opportunities as they arise. Um, um, I guess part of the problem is, you know, I get a bit bored. I want <laughs> to do something different all the time. So when someone comes along uh, or, or something happens, uh, I, I try and um, see if it's something I'm interested in, something I want to work on. I mean, the stuff we're going to talk about today, the, the fair and ethical trade stuff, that was just by chance as well. Happened in the right place at the right time. The, the, the work on global health, um, I guess I bumped into the right people and, and, and made myself aware and there's other things you know I'm, I'm doing some work now at the moment um, operating on uh, uh, you know specialized in ear surgery I'm operating on dogs and cats at the moment because I bumped into a vet at, at a conference that really? had lots of dogs and cats <laughs> ear problems so I thought <laughs> why not let's have a go so watch out for that but it should be coming out later this year. Is it very different dogs and cats there is are they? <laughs> um, some similarities so they've got the same sort of a okay. structure you know they've got similar sort of structures but uh, in different positions and uh, yeah quite a lot smaller so it's all endoscopic tiny little instruments which is probably why people haven't been trying this sort of stuff before in quite as much depth so mood you, you sound like a bit of a yes man is that is that fair to say you sort of you hear an opportunity and you you kind of have to go for it is, does that sound right or maybe maybe not yes <laughs> <laughs> very good and we're um we're unfortunately having to do this uh interview remotely because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic mood how's that how's that affected things for you and how have you been keeping yourself sane in all this other than operating on cats and dogs well even the cats and dogs are not allowed to operate on at the moment but um yeah I mean to be honest um at at first it was obviously um quite a difficult situation with ENT as well and particularly Mm -hmm. being Irish so it took a lot of time and effort to restructure things but hey things things are better now and um I've been trying to sort of you know spend some time away on my bike as well like cycling that's my main sort of sport that I do so I've been out on my bike quite a bit which is uh, good for the mind. Yeah you've probably been listening to our previous podcast mood where we discuss the benefits of cycling and how you'll live longer even if you are slightly uh, slightly more at risk of trauma. I'm, I'm sorry mood Barney has literally plugged that paper on every episode <laughs> <laughs> it's getting it's really going to be a broken record. <laughs> anyway, God's rolling his eyes at the moment, listeners. You can't see, but he is. All right, let's crack on with the, the topic at hand in the interview. So, Mood, do you think at the beginning, 
to try and get well, John, myself, and our audience up to speed. You could help us out with a, a couple of definitions. Uh, and mainly, could, could you explain to us what is actually meant by modern slavery? Sure. So modern slavery is a term that really covers where people have real no control, uh, no real control over their lives. So normally the sort of markers of modern slavery really are, are, are not slavery in the old term where, where actually you'd have no pay at all necessarily, but mm. things like debt bondage where you have paid and, and you owe someone, or owe an employer or owe an agent. Um, so you are stuck in employment. Um, you may not have rights. You may have poor working conditions that mean uh, you're effectively trafficked. You're, you are sent somewhere. So it includes human trafficking where there is where humans are, are effectively used as commodities, really. But that's not always evident to us because sometimes we think perhaps, oh, if people are getting paid. They're not commodities. Well, actually, if you're in a situation where you've had to pay a high amount of money and you're not getting paid very much, and you can't really get out of that situation. That is modern slavery. And Mood, we're here today to talk about the link between modern slavery and poor working conditions in the National Health Service in particular. How, how did you personally become so heavily involved in this topic? Again, like many of these things, it, 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 as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's by mistake, really. But I guess I was fortuitous because uh, my parents actually grew up in a, in a town called Sialkot in the north of Pakistan. And when I was growing up, I'd been aware that that town actually makes surgical instruments. I didn't know at that time that it probably makes between 70 to 80 percent of all the world's surgical instruments. It's a major manufacturing zone. And I was just traveling through there some 15 years ago, actually. And, and um, I was there on holiday actually on my honeymoon. <laughs> and when I was traveling through there, and my cousin knew that at that time I was a trainee surgeon, said, do you want to see how surgical instruments are made? And I thought, sure. But then when I, when I went, I saw pretty horrendous working conditions. Um, you know, people, manual laborer um, with poor health and safety, with children, young children working on these lines. And, and I was aware that this was coming to the NHS. And so it actually took me a year after I saw that to decide what I was going to do about it and to think about it and to strategize because you can always make things worse but I'm, I'm glad I've done something and I've raised this as an issue so so that's where it started really in Pakistan. Okay and you've obviously mentioned you know how it's coming to the NHS to, to what extent is the NHS you know, involved in this and the things we use in the NHS how how involved is that? So just to be clear this isn't just about surgical instruments I mean this is where it started but it, it, it mm. spread from there because I started to ask a question about surgical instruments and uh, it's become clear particularly in the last few years that the gloves are another major area where there where there are workers working I mean I can go into the details uh, further on as we talk but the NHS um, I, I took this to the British Medical Association um, uh, and asked them if they if it was something they were interested in wanted to support and I have to say that they've been great and put their full backing behind it and drew the Department of Health NHS supply chain, which is the single biggest supplier to the NHS, to the table to have some discussion. So the mm. NHS has been involved, I would say, at the beginning. To say that we or the NHS in particular has good oversight of all of the risks, to say that they've been um, completely proactive in this, to say that we've achieved a lot with demonstrable changes to many workers, I'd say that that's not there. To say that it is an issue for the NHS, absolutely. There's no doubt we have clear evidence that the NHS is buying many of these products coming from these sorts of supply chains. Do we know to what degree the NHS supply chain is impacted by this? Do, do, do we have an idea of the scale um, or is it, not, is it not clear yet? It's not clear. And, and, and to be honest, 
we've tried i've tried to get those data from the nhs from nhs supply chain which is a single biggest supplier as i say and we don't have data on that because companies will hide behind the idea that this is commercially sensitive information and they won't reveal where they're manufacturing a lot of these things you know we have this idea that we buy from a supplier that that company if it's based in the us say is making in the us but that's simply not the case for example with the most recent um supply chain problems we've had with the respirator masks we know that 3M, uh, the largest manufacturer of these masks, has at least nine factories in China making its masks and also has factories within Europe and within Latin America. This is not unusual. There's huge areas that are producing these goods. So we don't have good transparency. What we do have is some data I have seen from Norway, my colleagues in Norway that I'm also working with. They've looked at data and, 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 and they've only got limited data. They asked their suppliers to tell them where these goods are being manufactured. And what they found is around at least two thirds, possibly more than that, of where they could ascertain a country of origin of products. They were countries with very high risks of labor rights abuses. What the ITUC, um, the International Trade Union member organization, would rate as category four or five, which is the worst forms of labor abuse. So we think it's a big problem in medical supply chains. So is what you're saying there is that it's hidden by the complexity of these supply chains. We don't really have much of an understanding of it because of the complexity of the supply chain, because of the number of countries involved. And then the information we do have shows that a large proportion of what we're buying is PPE that's or PPE or healthcare supplies that are sourced from countries at high risk of these sorts of labor practices. Indeed, indeed. So one of the fundamental ways to deal with labor rights issues is to have transparency. And we don't have that transparency. You can't sort of quantify the problem until we know where the products are being made. And look, you know, um, frankly, if you go to China, where a lot of products are made, many of the factories, to be honest, have labor rights issues, quite serious ones. But there are factories that are good as well. So just, mm. you know, we need absolute clarity on, on, on the issues at hand. And, and that's very difficult to come by. It might be useful at this point to try and get an idea of what sort of conditions you know, some of the workers are facing. And you've mentioned about sort of financial difficulties where they're not being paid enough or they're in debt and, you know, they're bonded um, to the company through that. And yeah, and children working, making instruments. What, what other conditions are you aware of, which we should be aware of? So, I mean, I think I can tell you about the two supply chains that we worked on the most, which is the surgical instruments and the gloves, and I can mention some other products. But mm. um, So for surgical instruments, workers, uh, there's around 50,000 labourers working in this town of Sialcourt. Many of them will work for around $2 a day and they will get a piece rate. So the the production even within Sialcourt, within Pakistan, is outsourced. So Mm. a company, for example, in the UK may buy from a German company. The German company in turn will actually be manufacturing in a company in um, Sialcourt in Pakistan. That company in itself will then outsource to workers in small little garages doing different parts of the process. Yeah. Those workers have no, they're informal. They don't have any contracts. They get paid a piece rate, which is very small. They don't get any sick pay. They don't work. They don't get money. A lot of them will end up borrowing money because there'll be times when there are costs that they have to meet to feed their family or they've been sick. Um, so a lot of them end up in debt bondage, which then means they have to work for the factory owner. $2 a day is inadequate, even by Pakistan standards, for a family to live on. They will suffer injuries, you know, some of them quite serious. And as you can imagine, it's hard physical labor. They're normally working 12 hours a day. 
if you get an injury, which is not uncommon, working against grinding wheels, you know, you may injure your finger, you may lose your finger, you may lose your arm in some of these heavy machinery. There's also kids. Kids, uh, the issue of child labour has probably improved, but to say that it's gone is false because I know I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen children as young as seven working on machines that are not appropriate for them. I know stories of children that have been working on um, hammers that sort of forge metal that have had their digits squashed. I've heard of workers that have been chained inside factories so that they cannot escape because they owe money. So this is, you know, evidence of modern slavery in the surgical instruments um, manufacturing. Now, with the gloves, what we found is that the vast majority of gloves are produced either in Malaysia and Thailand, Malaysia in particular. And in fact, uh, I think it's something in the region of 60 to 60 percent, maybe slightly more than that, of all of our gloves come from Malaysia. There's absolutely no doubt that even in the NHS, the majority of the gloves are coming from Malaysia. And what we found, um, although I've reported this perhaps five years ago, in the last few years, there's been a number of media reports of the endemic labour rights abuse that happens within gloves factories, within a lot of factories within Malaysia, unfortunately. There's a heavy reliance on migrant worker, migrants coming from countries such as Bangladesh, Myanmar, Vietnam, where they really are impoverished and they're desperate for work. And unfortunately, they have unscrupulous recruitment agents who will tell them that if they go, there will be this great job. So people in countries such as Nepal um, will pay, on average, I think, around $1,000 for this opportunity to go there, which they will then owe and be indebted. I know of families that have sold their agricultural land because they think this money will give them the opportunity that they thought. There are people in Bangladesh who are really desperate, have paid up to $5,000 for this opportunity. You can imagine how much money that is in some of these countries. And so they will arrive and they're indebted and they have to pay that back. They have no choice. It's not the opportunities that they were given. I know of factories where they will work for three months without a day off, 13 hours a day. They're exhausted without adequate health and safety. Some factories where you have temperatures of up to 55, even 70 degrees Celsius. Some of them are patrolled by police, by security guards. You know, this is without a doubt modern slavery. And it's on a huge scale. There are tens of thousands of workers in Malaysia working in the gloves factories alone. I read the um, Diplomat's investigative piece, which was published a few years ago, which described some of the things that you've described. And we'll put a link in the show notes on that. I don't know if you're involved, Moodin, in that investigation, but it sounds like, um, sounds like you were, and sounds like a lot of that comes from your work. I've been involved in um, a lot of these investigations on the side as an advisor and linking people, but hmm. um, I'd actually highlighted the issue with gloves with a report some five years ago. And the NHS and several other organisations, um, procurement organisations, particularly in Sweden and Norway, had made some changes in policy and processes. What this found, what this demonstrated really, was those policies and processes are not good enough. The modern slavery was continuing despite the policies and processes. So what we need is meaningful um, change, and that doesn't include just policy. We need on-the-ground work and we need real data on what's happening, not just pieces of paper. 
I think it was 2012, wasn't it, that the NHS supply chain introduced some standards and then this diplomat investigation has come to light in 2019. So five, six years later, we're still seeing the same problem despite a supposed intervention. That's right. And actually, there was a, the, the first report was actually in the Guardian newspaper, um, also in December of, I think it was in fact December 2018, where they actually linked directly to um, supply chain issues in, into the NHS. Just you, you've mentioned a couple of things about, you know, finding, getting the data. Um, what are the reliable sources of information based from both the, you know, the companies will tell us something, you know, but we obviously we'll have eyewitness reports saying something else. What sources can we actually trust and rely on? Are there any? I mean, this is, this is very, very difficult. So, I mean, I, 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 you can't get those data yourself. And this is one of the problems. It, you, you rely on people on the ground to tell mm. you the truth. Yeah. And this is one of the biggest problems. You know, we have this idea that has been touted for, for, for many years in many different sectors, not just the medical sector, where we will say that actually the solution may be what we do is, is we, we set these standards and then we send in auditors who are going to check those standards. Actually, 20 years of experience shows that auditing does nothing. We will pick the boxes. We will say, OK, everything's OK. It doesn't change the process. And what we're trying to get to is a process where we respect workers, give those workers a voice, give those workers some power. So when I, I must admit, when I started, I was a bit naive and I thought maybe we'd have some sort of label and then, and, you know, and we'd audit and everything would be okay. But I've grown rather pessimistic of that approach. And indeed, the recent scandal with the gloves has shown exactly that that approach is not enough. What we need to do is we need some complex understanding of what is going to engender the cultural change and what the barriers are, what the incentives are. I'm not blaming just the factories down there and, and the mm. workers. I think also we have a responsibility because there's been a, a real focus on price, and that's all we've been asking. And I don't know what we expect if all we ask about is price and how low we can push the price in a competitive market, then what's going to give is you're going to give human labour the least possible cost at the end of the day. I'm not saying there's no there's no blame uh, at the other end as well but there's probably blame all through or, or perhaps we shouldn't use blame perhaps we should say misunderstanding and, and a lack of awareness uh, and we need new ways of doing things which, which which is difficult yeah yeah sounds extremely difficult having set the scene a little bit with what's happened over the last few years maybe you could just touch on how COVID-19 might have affected this situation if we if we know yet how it's driven any pressures into this already fraught situation Sure. I mean, the COVID-19 situation and, and, and some of the problems that have come about are probably from the way that we've, we've done business and we continue to do business. You know, what's become apparent is we can't produce enough PPE. And no one saw that coming, of course. Well, people have predicted there was going to be problems if we ever had this massive pandemic. But, you know, until it happens, it's just business as usual. But what we come to realise is actually there suddenly is a bit of more awareness of how reliant we are on foreign manufacturing. I mean, I think that's clear. Just about, I'd say probably at least 90%, if not more, of all of our masks are made in China. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it shows how heavily reliant we've become on manufacturing overseas by, and that is engendered, of course, by pushing the price as low as possible. I can also tell you that there are labour rights issues in China. There's been reports of prisoners in China being forced to make masks. Now, that was reported by Reuters. I also know, having been to Mexico a few years ago, 
seen with my own eyes, workers there making masks in factories in Mexico. And actually, when I spoke to the factory owner there, he said, actually, all my workers have now become home workers. He used to have workers in his factory making masks, but he had to say, no, you have to be a home worker because I can't afford to pay your social security, your sick pay. And because of price competition from China, I have to compete. And I've been to those workers' homes and they work hard. They all thread 3,000 masks a day by hand. And if they're sick, the kids will help out. So there's labor rights issues with that. With gloves, again, there's been problems. We didn't know the problems are already there. Those problems have continued and ongoing. And if anything, there's been reports of, shall we say, the workers being asked to do extra work on top of everything that they're already doing. They're normally working at least six days a week. And I have to say, we negotiated, or groups I'm involved with, work very hard to get them down to six days a week maximum that they were allowed to work. They're now being asked to work extra days for a quarter of the pay because they've been told that they're COVID heroes. I don't think that's appropriate. What we also found was our stocks were very low. And the reason our stocks were very low is because we have been so focused on short supply chains, short-term contracts. You know, we want to be in this competitive market. Because if we had a better long-term relationship with some of our suppliers, maybe we'd have had in a better situation. So with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic, I think that there may be a large number of people who think or perhaps might openly say, well, it's a pandemic, we need PPE. Can we really be worrying about what people may or may not be doing in other countries? How would you respond to this kind of line of thought? Sure, it's a difficult one, but I don't see any reason why we can't have both. I mean, I can tell you that the share price of companies making masks and making gloves has rocketed. So to say that these companies are not making money and, you know, we should feel that they haven't got the ability to change things is is wrong. So there's no reason we can't at the same time be asking for us to protect people, humans. I mean, if anything, I would hope the coronavirus has taught us a bit more kindness towards each other, a bit more consideration of the way we treat each other. And there's no reason why populations that exist in Malaysia to support us should not also be um, afforded that respect. Do you see any signals in the, the sort of things that are coming out of the NHS that, that there is an awareness of this and an awareness of the pressures that the need for PPE is putting on these supply chains and on this labour market? Yeah, sure. I think the NHS is actually waking up to this. So to be fair, the UK has put in place legislation. So something called the Modern Slavery Act, which came in five years ago, which actually made it illegal for companies to be um, willingly um, supporting modern slavery in their supply chains overseas. Okay, so that legislation exists. The problem has been the implementation of that legislation has not been great. What does it mean? What are the what? Are, how do we actually find out what's going on? And what are the sort of not really the punishments, but the the the, the sort of remediation that we can do to try and fix these problems? And that's not been there. But there has been talk, certainly. I mean, Theresa May was actually the person that pushed through this legislation. And Boris Johnson has now actually committed to making this work. So the Home Office, who I have had some discussions with, are now pushing this forward. The UK will hopefully become a leader in modern slavery. So the response from the NHS has certainly been that we recognise this problem and that we want to be part of the solution. But obviously, we need to know what that actually means. And I think the solutions are complex. So as I've said, it's not just policies and pieces of paper. It's actually demonstrating that those have real effect on the ground 
not just pieces of paper that are signed and that we feel happy we've done something. I, I think a lot of people might be listening to this and they, who knows, they may already be quite stressed and there's plenty to think about as a doctor um, in COVID times and in normal times. You can imagine some of them will be start feeling that pressure, that idea of, well, gosh, do I have to be feel guilty about using PPA? Should I be avoiding things um, at a time when, you know, PPE and things like that are so crucial? Can I really afford to be feeling guilty about using it? Do you have any advice for that sort of internal conflict? Sure. I mean, I guess it comes down to who is responsible. I mean, I think if anyone is feeling, I feel some responsibility for what I use, and that's great, you know, because I think we all should. Mm. To say that, you know, individuals necessarily have the power to do something, it's variable. So some people will just say, okay, that's bad and that hopefully someone else will sort it out. But if people are feeling active and they want to do something about it, actually the best thing is to make your trust aware of the problem because uh, despite me talking about this, lots of people are still unaware that this is uh, that the medical supply chains are a major source of labour rights abuse. And more than that, you can, of course, write to the Home Office. You could, a group of you could together write to the Home Office to make it clear to them that this is something we care about and to NHS supply chain, because I can tell you NHS supply chain are responsive to what people want. And if the market is not asking for it, then that's a bit difficult. And we are opinion makers, people working in healthcare. It's our NHS, it doesn't belong to the government. Mm. Uh, That's how I view it. And we have the right to speak up and say, no, this is not something that I want to be willingly participating in. What are you doing about it? So we all have a voice and we can all make that voice heard. And I think that's, you know, perhaps the easiest thing that people can do. There are some who have been very active and have taken it to their trust board, procurement and said, what are you doing? And we have a workbook called the Ethical Procurement for Health Workbook, freely available online, which gives you some pointers as where to start, where to try to make some change, because you can't do it all at once. It's a step by step progression. That's some fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will you know, take heed of that. That's brilliant. That's yeah, really inspiring. Is there anything, are there any particular companies or types of PPE that people might see on the ground when they're working that might be red flags or that their trust, they see in their trust that might suggest that there is a, uh, that the supply chain that they're getting their PPE from is not one that, that is recommended or is um, that a bigger problem than that? So it, it, these, these, these are very difficult questions. So just to be clear, boycotting is considered the final answer along the whole yeah. chain of action. What you really want to do is, is to bring the companies that are not there yet, shall we say, on board to try and sort of support them to get better because turning a blind eye is not going to help those workers. So it's interesting, the US actually placed a ban, an import ban on one of the factories called WRP, which is a huge manufacturer of gloves and is coming into the NHS as well under different brand names. You won't necessarily see the brand names of the actual manufacturers and they put imposed that ban but actually thousands of the workers lost their job because the factory almost went down interestingly they now reversed that ban i'm not entirely sure why perhaps because pp is such an issue for them so the so, so so boycotting is not the answer we want to bring companies along so i'm always wary of naming and shaming that you shouldn't buy from this however if you want to look at companies that have had issues in their supply chain then you can easily look um, at media reports you can look at our report um, if you go to the bma website and search for fair medical fair and ethical trade and you search for a report called in good hands it's all in there which companies historically were problematic i wouldn't tell you that they've all 
sorted things out. And I think you can also look at media reports, but there's no doubt that some of the gloves that people will be using in hospitals today will have been produced under slavery. You mentioned the medical fair and ethical trade group. So what would you say of the, um, which you, I think you started it up, was it in 2006, was it, I think, around then? And what, what successes and what difficulties have, has the company faced over these last few years? You mentioned some of them already. So the Medical Fair and Ethical Trade Group is, 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 is a group under the British Medical Association International Department. So it's, it's not a commercial organisation, it's, it's basically an advocacy. Um, we bring together people, we instigated some of the early conversations. So I think the successes we've had is actually bringing around people uh, around the table to create the Ethical Procurement for Health Workbook, which was by the Department of Health. Have those conversations with NHS supply chain. And I think those conversations led to some of the early policy documents. I also was one of the people that set up something called the International Working Group on Ethical Public Procurement. So actually I'm now working with, well, have been for a number of years actually, working with Norway and Sweden who are also doing this work on procurement. And we've got some interest as well from countries such as Italy and, and region, well, regions of Italy and regions of Spain who are trying to come together. And so we can try and have a unified voice to, to affect these global uh, market forces. So successes, I guess, we, we're getting it on the radar. I have to say the first five years, it was hard work. Yeah, you know, People would say, give a nod and say, yes, that's very important. Nobody would do anything. Certainly now that um, the market is talking about it, purchasers are talking about it, the NHS has a strong brand, people are talking about it and they're starting to understand and they're starting to listen. We've had definite successes. So, for example, um, I went back to Pakistan um, a few years ago and we looked at some of the factories that have been subject to these regulations. And like I said to you, the regulations haven't been universally successful because in the gloves industry, I can't find any good evidence they've had a major change. But what I can say is that in the surgical instruments industry, uh, we went to some of the factories that would allow us to visit them and we found workers were so much happier. They were actually protected. They didn't have overtime unless they wanted to and they were paid adequately for their overtime. They were happier. And what was best was the factory owner, one of the factories I went to, said he didn't understand this crazy idea of, you know, fair and ethical trade. But now he was doing it, his workers were so happy and he had a long queue of the best workers in the industry who all wanted to come and work at his factory. And he said he wasn't going to go back. Oh, fantastic. I mean, that, that, is a, that is a success, without a doubt, isn't it? And, you know, even, you can even argue if that's just one factory, that's a success. But then hopefully that's a model for them to build on and for other, you know, other factories to go, oh, why are they being so successful? I want to be like that and or snowball from there, hopefully. I mean, sure. And, and look, there, are, there have been other successes too. I think with the gloves, although I'm pessimistic, actually, uh, with organisations I've been working with, an organisation called Impact, they've actually worked very hard with some of these factories to say, no, actually, we need you know new ways of working. And they've lobbied and several uh, of the glove manufacturing companies have actually now repaid the debt that those employees had to pay to come over. And there's new regulations now in place on the middlemen, the, the recruitment agents to bring these people over to limit what they can pay. Those sort of limitations were theoretically in place, but I think they're now being enforced a little bit better. I'm not telling you that there's no problems, there still is problems, but the mindset is changing where we can't actually indebt these people before they've even come to work. And I think also with the media protests as well, um, uh, sorry, with the media, there's been protests at some of the factories, particularly WRP. There's a protest outside the factory, which got those workers some more rights and, and some of their pay that they were due. But look, 
there's still problems ongoing, as I mentioned, with the gloves, with the PPE. There's still problems in the surgical instruments because when I went back a few years ago, yes, it was great to see the factories that have improved, but I went to other areas which were not subject to these clauses, and I still see children working, and I still see work, people working under horrendous conditions. So I take some positives, and, and look, from people who've been working this this sort of change for a long time, they say it's very difficult. And I think what we've achieved is good. To say that we've achieved what I want to achieve, no. I wouldn't describe you as uh, pessimistic. Describe you as determined and quite inspiring. So don't. <laughs> yeah. definitely not a pessimist. Are there any particular resources or plugs that you would suggest to our audience who are keen to read more about this topic and inform themselves and empower themselves to write to their chief exec, to write to the home office, write to NHS supply chain? You know, where, where can we point them towards? I mean, I'm going to plug our own website, which is the Medical Fair and Ethical Trade Group website on the British Medical Association. So it's, it, it's you look under uh, the British Medical Association, Medical Fair and Ethical Trade, under the International Department and Policies, you'll find it there, usually through a Google search. On there, we've got a whole load of resources, which is obviously all free. There, There's a short video on there as well, which people can show to highlight the issues uh, with some footage from some of these areas there's an article in the bulletin of the world health organization which i wrote a couple of years ago which is quite short so if you want a short summary of some of the problems that's probably where i'd go and you can contact um, the international department through that website where they can provide further support uh, uh, for for those who want to take action and want to move on further with this mood thank you so much for for joining us on this on this yeah general spotting interview um before we finish we are, we'd like to ask our interviewees could you possibly give us any uh, take-home points for our listeners two or three or whatever you like or things they can really take home from our discussion sure i, I guess um well th- thank you for, for offering me the opportunity and, and you know i'm always keen to promote uh, well spread the word about this problem so i, I guess the key messages would be that perhaps we need to think about where our goods are being produced because I think actually a lot of them are being produced under some pretty appalling conditions. Um, I think as long as people are aware of that, that's a good start. And I think the other thing is not to forget that you do have more power than you think. You are the end user. Doctors in particular, but other health workers too, have quite a strong voice, a leadership voice, and what you say matters. So you can ask, the rep that comes to show you something, where do you produce your goods? Because if a few people ask that question, they'll have to take it back and, and start to ask those questions. You know, not just where do you produce your goods, but what conditions are they produced on? And if you want to go further, you can take it to your chief exec, your procurement. I'd probably take it to the chief exec actually, because you need buy-in from the top. You can write to the home office, you can write to NHS supply chain. These, you, you have a lot of power. We're, we're fortunate to live in a country where democracy is true and where you have power to voice your opinion so educate yourself and be an activist if you want to be mood are you hopeful for the future yeah i am i think it's slowly getting there it's, it's not gonna it's not gonna be fixed in my lifetime but you know if you sow the seeds and it gets better hey, that's all right you know well look thank you so much again and uh thanks for joining us tonight and yeah have a lovely evening You've been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. A big thank you to Mr. Mood Booter for taking the time to talk to us today. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman and the animations produced by Costa. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any feedback or questions, then get in touch either via Twitter or our email, journalspotting at gmail.com. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.